you're at 175 pounds, they're talking about putting a feeding tube in you, you have no money to your name, you're on state insurance, you're broke, you're sick, you're told that you have three to six months to live. And that goes to show you that there's humanity in this world that means something. Asking for that help is the, the hardest thing to do. I'm Anthony. And I'm Tyson. We're recovering addicts. This is a podcast about journeys from the darkness of addiction to the sunlight of sobriety. A clean addict is a strong soul. Most humans are never faced with losing everything and then fighting every day for a better life. Addicts who survive addiction and make a comeback are bad ass. How fucking amazing is that quote? <laughs> Which brings us to why, man, you are with Tyson and I on the Dismantled Life podcast to tell your story to help others either find the sunshine, stay in the sunshine, or get back to the sunshine. So thank you very much. I've been sober since March 16th, 2016. I made the choice to be sober because that was the day I was diagnosed with cancer. I was a degenerate. I was a fuck up in terms of internally when I was at that point where I got diagnosed. Out exterior, I looked pretty good. I had a good suit. I could speak to speak. I could talk to talk and walk to walk. But man, I was a drunk. And, you know, I <laughs> self-control was not in my repertoire. Totally get it. And I was hanging around executives all day. So like for me, man, it was like, how do I keep up with these guys? How do I impress them? How do I become that you know, how do I want them to like me? And a lot of it was drinking. It was showing how much I could drink. It was doing crazy shit because like, you know, how far could I take it? And so that they would go, man, that guy's crazy. I want to hang out with that guy. <laughs> so that was, that, that, that was where I was at, man. And I was divorced, officially divorced in August of 2015. And, you know, prior to that, I was traveling a lot and always drinking on the road. And, you know, it was free. It was accessible. It was always there and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's, 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 it's what's that called? It? Insecurity. That's what I was hiding at that time. So, yeah. But my background, if you really just, if you want to get to it, I, uh, I've been an athlete a, a big majority of my life. And then I've been a consultant and I hate the word consultant because everyone's a consultant, right. but like what I, that's such a, <laughs> but basically what I do is I work with people in large companies, helping them transform. So I do a lot of behavior change management work with large companies, um, work with executives, work with senior level folks, making sure like, for example, if they want to change how they do sales, you bring a guy in like me and I, I basically tell you the things you probably don't want to know and help you get it over the line. Hopefully we don't leave bodies at the end of the day. Oh, I hear you, man. That's awesome, dude. And I listen, I agree with you with the what I'll call like professional accessibility to alcohol because you've got expense yeah. accounts, you you can write oh. things off. It's part of the repertoire, just as you say. I mean, Tyson and I talk about this all the time. In fact, our guest Bavesh specifically talked about the accessibility of alcohol in the tech industry and after hour or after hours of the cocaine thing, but happy hours, you know, when you're leaving work and going and hanging out with everybody and drinking. So I get that was a big part of both Anthony and I's sort of voyage as well in selling type environments like that. So that definitely hits It home. starts out innocent enough, and then it leads to blackouts and cocaine addictions for me. 
like college, man, with college, you drink, you eat 20 something years old. It's harmless. At least that's what I thought in my head. It was harmless. And then as you, you graduate and then all of a sudden you're told you're an adult, well, you're not a fucking adult. You're 22, 23 years old with money. Yeah. And then you're hanging around people with more money. Like then, then you end up going to happy hours and $150 later, your tab's like, oh shit. And those were pretty frequent in my case. But you know, again, at that time I was married. And so like I did it, I think we as, as alcoholics are great at deceiving people. We're like the kings and queens of deception. People who say like, no, we're not. I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, we are. We're, we're great at deceiving people because we don't want people to know our secret. And we don't want people to know our, like, our deepest, darkest thing that we're battling with, which is this addiction to alcohol or to drugs or whatever, it, whatever your hindrance or if it's sex, I don't care. We all have, we have an addiction in, in when we have an addictive personality. And so like, I did a good job of hiding it. I was always like, oh yeah, we need more, we need whatever. And I was a big scotch and whiskey drinker. And those, those are quote, and I'm air quoting because you can't see the sipping drinks. Not for me. No, no, no. I could do a good bottle of fifth a day or every other day and then go out and do happy hour that was my my ticket was that i would go drink pregame by myself in my hotel room or you know with others and then go to the happy hour and have like a few and everyone's like you didn't drink very much tonight little did they know i mean i'm i'm half a bottle in before even showing up to the party and no one even knew it right i mean they couldn't tell at all that's right. No one knew. No one knew because why should they? It's not their business. I'm I'm coaxing my pain and my insecurities through the booze. Yeah, I was really great at it. And then traveling globally too. And I flew a lot of business class and first class. So a lot of times when I tra- traveled international, I'd show up piss ass drunk because, you know, it's a 21 hour flight or it's a 15 hour flight and all the alcohol you can drink. It's like a fat kid in a candy store. Come on. Like you're giving me unlimited access to booze and there's bars on these planes. Like, shut up. <laughs> so, you know, I remember showing up to Manila, piss ass drunk and going, well, I hope they know where they're taking me because I don't know where I'm going. So I had to show my phone and the address and I pray to God it wasn't kidnappers. Like it was, it was that, it was that bad in some cases. <laughs> Do you function at that level? Like I know we can all function as drunks. Um, obviously we've all done that. And just like you say, we're, we're, the best actors in the world, but like, were you able to handle and run meetings and talk without slurring and stuff? Yeah. Like I was such a functional alcoholic. Like I could go out party my balls off and people would be like, Oh, I'm so hungover. And I'm being like, yeah, I'm good. And I'm still drunk. Keep that in mind. Like I had a few sips before even walking into the office. Cause I was good. And I could, I could facilitate meetings. I could be on my game. Maybe my cheeks were a little rosy, but other than that, you know, I was just a happy guy and no one knew the difference of whether I was drunk or not. Cause I was such a high functioning alcoholic. Tyson and I talked about this in our own stories in episodes one and two, how we could function and no one was the wiser, you know, to the point where you, you could right, Tyson, you could show up in Vegas at a conference and, and kick things <laughs> off with a keynote speech and nobody would even know that you were blacked out in jail, completely <laughs> shit faced. <laughs> Nobody would, yeah, nobody would even know that uh, I had fought a police officer while being blacked out and spent a few days in jail right before my keynote speech. You know, that's that's right. Yeah, that's right. Like they don't know the difference, and like you take me to some European cities, God knows the debauchery that I oh, got into. <laughs> Where was your top Euro debauchery? I used to live in Spain, so I have yeah, quite yeah. I, I mean, it. I lived, I mean, I spent six months in Germany and six months in England. And then like 
every now and then like i'd go down to south america and oh god i go. mean there are days where i'm like i'm thank god i'm alive and not in those little shitholes that i could uh-huh. have ended up yeah paying yeah. whomever to get out of whatever situation that i got into but uh when you're hitting it yeah. hard let's just just a, i'm going to paint a little narrative here for you and, and you can maybe fill in the blanks with some ad libs almost say you're in south america uh, mm-hmm. how hard are you drinking now you said a bottle or half a bottle a day but i would imagine if you turned it up because you're on the party side of this, not necessarily the after hour, or I keep saying after hours because of my cocaine habit. Everything was after hours to me. Um, happy hour. How mm-hmm. hard are you hitting it? Like, are we talking like you've been at this for a day and a half straight? What kind of level of drink are we talking about? We're talking like my go-to, like I said, was scotch and, and, and rye whiskey or whiskey. But if I didn't have access to that, sign me up for the tequila and the vodka. And it just depended on what countries and where I was at and what I had access to. If you were talking South America, for example, I most likely probably had at least a bottle and a half of drinks that night before. And then I was piss-ass drunk walking into the office. However, I probably was drunk enough where I could just cover myself and I would probably have a, like a little sip here and there just to keep me going so I didn't get like too far off the wagon. And then I was ready to go for another night of a bottle and a half with my coworkers, and perhaps i probably would have that half bottle to almost a bottle in my room and then of course then you know people buy drinks and shit like that while we're out happy hours and culturally like in south korea soju oh that shit knocks you on your ass culturally like you don't say no to drinks and who am i to say no to a drink at that time in my life yeah. i'm not gonna disrespect you keep them coming God forbid I say no to you and you and you, all 12 of you that are taking me out to drinks tonight. So, oh God, it was, yeah, it was, I was that guy and I was the life of the party. Still am. That's the fun part is like, I realized being sobriety, you don't lose that. It actually gets better. It does get better. And I can make fun of those who are, who are uh, in a weird state and I can have some fun with them. Not to say that I do, but I do. Um <laughs> So I used to find little holes in the wall that uh, when I was at home base, right, I wasn't traveling or anything, but I was at my home cities and I'm not going to say where the name of the place, but I would find places that would let me in after hours, before hours almost. So kind of Mm -hmm. let me drink. Did you, you don't have to be specific and name names, but did you have places that you had go-tos that could, you know, you had a secret code or knock or text and you could get in pretty much and do whatever you wanted? The hotels that I usually stayed at were pretty frequent. So like I got to be friends with the bartenders at the hotels. Be like, hey, Matt. And then here we go. We're off to the races. And yeah, most hotel bars were my best friends. Even in my neighborhoods. Yeah, in my neighborhoods, they always heavy poured me. If they saw me, it was a heavy pour. Yeah. Usually, like, for example, if I was, you know, out on a date or if I had friends or whatnot, they were always heavy pouring my drinks more than the other people's because they knew. I always bought drinks because I always wanted to make sure that mine had the heavy pours because right. the bartender knew who I was. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. No, I and typically, I mean, I, I gave them so much business. I mean, it ended up being in some cases, like, I had free drinks. Man, you bring so many people in. Here's drinks on the house tonight. Thank I'm like, you. all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's Christmas in June. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, man. I mean, it really is better than the lottery. It, it, and that, I, so I bartended for a long time. And I, so I had that just out of reciprocity more than anything, where, you know, they came to see you. And when you bartended, you cut them a little slack, a free drink here, a free shots there, whatever. And I don't right. want to anybody in the bar scene or bartending scene. No, yeah. Here, but on the reverse, if you would go out and show up there, then the same would be true for you. And you would just, and it just was this, we always joked, like none of us should tip or just tip at the same 20 because in, in market, every time that you gave it back, just because they, you know, kind of like hashtag it, 
a little bit. That's to right. See how many times it made its way around because it became this vicious circle. It was just constant, constant drunkenness and for me, other things as well. But um, so I get it. The danger was the credit card. If I had the credit card, you know, my business credit card, and it was out of sight, out of mind, keep charging. It's not real money. It's credit money. I never, I never worried about it. And then expensing it was always, it depended on the client, but you could expense a lot of it. And again, like, for example, like dinner, I could expense a drink or two on dinner, but let's say, for example, the client was taking me out. I mean, we could easily run up a four or $500, $600 bar tab. I benefited from it and then go back to my room and like, eh, you got another couple of hours. I could have a few more drinks. And I did. I go down to the bar in the hotel and pony up and like, eh, yeah, I'll have another whatever and shut them down at 1, 1 a.m. or midnight. And I was sometimes the only guy there. Didn't bother me. I made friends. Easy. Uh, <laughs> me and Tyson are the same way. We can be friends with anybody and give us 10 seconds and we'll know 20 people at the bar. That's right. The story that you're telling, like just everything you're saying, Matthew, just hits me so on the money. I was, you know, $600 bar tabs like every weekend. I mean, the hotel uh, bartenders, it's it's just so on the money. And the, the cheating, meaning, you know, the, the pre-gaming secretly. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like as we do these conversations, I find, you know, there's kind of these certain like player types almost like if you're into like poker or like a sport, you know, there's these like styles of, of players. And it's like, this is a, this must be a persona, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Right. And I, I'm an athlete. So like, don't challenge me to a drinking contest. Right? So that must right. be it. I was an yeah. athlete as well. So that's probably it. You're competitive about it. I was extremely competitive. I've said that in my story that, I mean, the competitive aspect of it was a huge piece. That's exactly right. Don't, don't challenge. I will tell you the three drunkest I've ever been is when I challenged folks to a drinking contest. When I was in Kazakhstan, wow. I drank, I got blackout drunk and I've never been that way ever. Be, but we were drinking as they call it vodka and, and they call me a pussy because I couldn't drink what they do. I mean, I wasn't conditioned. My liver hated me and along with my rest of my body that day, but like <laughs> under the table weeping, like that's how drunk I was. But in Kazakhstan, and, by the way, anything in Kazakhstan is already like multiplied just because yeah. it's in Kazakhstan. That's exactly right. And this is before Borat. Keep that in mind. So like, right. So Borat, like, that's like, that's like a new denomination, like BC. We have right? yeah, before Borat. Borat. Right. So it's like, so like no preconceived notion. And then Australia, you know, those guys, like they can drink hard. And like, I, I remember going, my God, I think either one of two things are going to happen tonight. One. I'm going to find out who I really am as a person and I don't know where I'm going to end up or two, I'm going to die. So in, in a walk we went, ended up being the drunkest I've ever, and then the third one was on an airplane. What happened on the airplane? Well, basically it was unlimited. It was on Virgin Australia going to Australia. We were in, in first class. So it was like unlimited drinks. And I just remember being so drunk that they had to like move me off the plane physically because I was that intoxicated. Uh, I didn't get arrested or anything. That's pretty funny. So you got on the plane, and I'm, I'm asking you in detail because yeah. I had a similar situation in London. Yeah. You So the plane didn't get off the ground, right? Oh, no, it got off the ground. I was drunk on the plane before we took off. But then yeah. you started giving me more booze. Got it. And by the time we got to Australia, forget it. <laughs> it was, and, and I'm 6'3", 200 pounds, so I'm no small puppy dog. So you're going to deadweight me off that seat? Good luck to you. Oh, 
Oh, uh, God. that's a lot of hours to get the volume up. That's oh, and it was just constant. Like, do you need another drink, Miss? Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> oh yeah. Like this should not be empty. You know what? The funniest one. I had the exact same situation for the most part, except I didn't even make it through the end of the flight. This is hilarious. I got on the flight or on the plane in London, and I was supposed to uh, go down to Spain. And they were like, I, I get to my seat and the stewardess comes up to me and she's like, you're too drunk. And I'm like, wow, too drunk in London, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and, eventually, and I'm there and I guess, you know, whatever it was, like, clearly I was drunk. And so I'm there like debating and they're like, nope, sir, you're, you're just, you're slurring your words. We heard you. You're out of here. So they halt, they like arm under the, you know, like get two guys on either side and they kind of like, I'm not fighting them or anything. So they're yeah. like hauling me off and they make me go like basically sleep it off and then get the next flight how funny is that yeah that's your that's your yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're polite about it if anything <laughs> that's exactly like yeah we've been here uh we've seen worse yeah <laughs> at least he's not belligerent and telling us these things in an accent uh you know what i mean like I mean, that's just what it was like, even in Australia, like, like you said, like it took four people to lift me off the chair and, it, and they put me in this like holding, um, I don't call it holding cell basically. And they, there was, I wasn't under arrest or anything, but it was more so just take it easy. You, and I was like, Oh, I just had a really long flight. It's been a lot of work. I'm just really tired. And like, like I told you, I was the master at deception. You know, they didn't give me a breathalyzer or anything of that nature, of course, because I mean, we're in Australia. Like, why would they give me a breathalyzer? Yeah, everybody's um, drunk. They just assume that. That's exactly right. I mean, I was like, I just had a few couple, you know, and I'm just tired. You mix that in, and I'm just, this is where we're at right now. And my tie, and I, and in a suit, keep this in mind. Like, I'm in a nice suit and tie. So it doesn't look like I'm a degenerate. I look like I'm a professional business guy. And that's, that was the persona, to your that's point, true. that I carried. Yeah. Uh, so that. March 16th, 2016, let's uh, yes, go free a little bit, it sounds like, unfortunately, with some bad news, but it yeah. feels like it ultimately turned into a positive thing. I'm curious how that, that worked out. Yeah. So that day, that was the day I was diagnosed with cancer. And so I remember being pissed off at the world and pissed off at everybody. And it was everybody else's fault, but mine, as we all kind of go through as a, as a, as an alcoholic, it's never your fault. It's everybody else's or as a narcissistic asshole too. That's what I was as I was blaming everybody. And so that night I got shit faced and I remember closing the bar and I have a Harry Potter scar above my right eye. Cause I hit the wall at the hotel that I was staying at because I was so drunk. I didn't know where the bathroom was and I hit the wall and I woke up with blood all over my sheets. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? You know what I'm saying? Like I had that, what the fuck moment. And that was that. And it was like a real hard look. And it was look, I remember looking in the mirror, had blood all over my face. And I remember like, dude, Matt, you just got diagnosed with cancer and you're acting this way. What do you think got you to this point? Like, this is like the hard conversation I had in myself with my head. And I'm like, yep, it's, it's just my, this is my fault. Time to take accountability for my actions. Time to take accountability for who I am as a person. I just made a commitment to, commitment to myself. I'm like, if I want to live, I need to stop drinking. That day, I stopped. Like, I stopped cold turkey. And I have not looked back. Because, no, don't get me wrong. Like, there are days I walk by the liquor store and I'm like, well, hello. Leading up to that point. <laughs> and, you know, like, hello, old friend, you know, and it was like, <laughs> we've had time. We've had fun together, haven't we? Like, and, and people are laughing at me. I'm like, no, I'm talking to this person. They're like, are you talking to the bottom? Like, if you judge me with the eyes any more seconds than we already have, we're going to have work. I am talking <laughs> to this bottle instead of drinking the fucking bottle. So leave me yeah. the fuck alone. 
That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Judge me with your eyes in another way. How about that? Exactly. Um, just... <laughs> Pet my hair and tell me I'm pretty. That's all I'm asking. That's all right I now. want. Yeah. That's all I want. It's it's all I ask for. It's not much. Yeah. So I made that choice that day and not to drink anymore. I was what they called, I think the term is called wet sober or dry sober. I can't remember the term. It's basically you, you stopped drinking, but you didn't have any support. You just stopped drinking. You didn't go to AA. One of my best friends, I've known him since college, has a very similar story to me about drinking and same, uh, and I won't give his name because, I mean, it's his story to tell. He's he's done a 180 with his life, and he's encouraged me to go to AA, and he told me to get on. And so I started going to AA and go through the 12 steps. I went through the 12 steps a couple of times. Part of that that whole process of just going through the 12 steps, uh, there was a lot of reluctancy, but it, it, it had to be, like for me, I don't know about anybody else, it's like for me, I had to want to go and I had to want to put the effort into it. I wasn't there because the, the parole officer was telling me I had to go or I didn't get a DUI or I didn't, you know, I wasn't arrested. I didn't have this like law abiding reason I had to be there. I had a literally life reason to be there. If I didn't get stay sober, I could die as a result. For me, it was like a matter of life and death. And so there was a no brainer to go to these things and, and get sober and stay sober. So like for that matter, I went to AA and I went to like a men's group here and I went to a bigger group on Thursdays. And, you know, I, I found ways to get into different types of groups to see what would work best for me. Yeah. And I found that the men's sobriety groups worked best for me because I felt like I could connect with guys better than I could connect with women. And it was no fault. It was just because as a, as a, as a male, I felt like most males understood where I was coming from when it came to being a drunk. Not to say females don't, I'm just saying like that for me is what I needed. And so I was in a guy's group and we got some, we had some pretty hardcore conversations. My sponsor was phenomenal. He was a no nonsense kind of guy. He, I call him at 2 AM. Look, guess what I'm thinking about doing? And he's like, all right, what do you need? And we just had a really good relationship as a result of that. And so that's, that's kind of the been projection. And nowadays I can walk into the liquor aisle or the liquor store and it, and I gag at the sight of people doing shots. I gag at the sight of my old friends, <laughs> you know, like I just, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't appeal to me anymore at all. Congratulations on your sobriety. That is absolutely wonderful. The, the main point here for for everybody listening is the way is the way. And that's individual. Each individual or addict has their own path towards sobriety. There, there is no one size fits all. So I commend you for trying a few different AA programs out, if you will, because a lot of people try one and quit and then go back to the bottle and start right. trying to pursue it. And listen, mm-hmm. I'm not judging anybody that's done that. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is right. it, it sometimes it takes a few different attempts to get the boulder over the hill. Think about sponsors that I love to always mention is they're heroes in so many ways, but the one that right. people beginning path to sobriety is they're not just someone to call. They're someone to truly talk to, to cry with, to, to, and they understand your pain because you are going to be alone. You're going to feel alone. The people you hung out with are, you are going to have to leave them behind, not forever, mm-hmm. but for a long time, most likely. And you'll need right. someone to be in your corner that will take your call, won't judge you to give you, because God knows you need the fucking strength when you need it. You can't say, mm-hmm. I, you can, I can only talk to you at three. You, it's got to be an open-ended relationship. And that's what that's sponsors right. are, my fucking heroes, because of that. That's exactly, dude. Amen to that. Like, they are, they are, spon- they are heroes. And 
I, I sponsored a few folks along the way because I, I mean, that's that's how you give back, right? Somebody saved my life. God forbid for me to not be able to be able to reciprocate that. You got to pass the baton, right? It's, it's right. That's right. And and being a sponsor, I think, is a huge responsibility. And I think it also helps you stay sober. Like oh, yeah. if you're if you're sponsoring and somebody's looking up to you, why would I fuck this up? No, yeah. Yeah. no, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. yeah, you kind of put the laws of, of physics and the universe on your side in a way because you know you're you're accountable to to something much bigger than yourself, someone else's well being. So I, I definitely that's agree. right. Yeah, yeah, man, it, you have a lot to lose if you don't get like to me. I had I had a lot to lose and I lost it. If I was I was traveling, I wasn't, and this is when I was married, right? So here, a typical week for me was like I I'd leave on a Sunday night and I would come back on a Thursday night, and then I'd be home and I, I have two kids. And at the time, my wife, you know, I, it was a robotic. It was a very robotic. And I was hiding my drinking because I was, I had a very robust liquor stash. You know, I wasn't the dad that I needed to be. I was a horrible father, like horrible. And, and it sucks to say that out loud, but that is the honest to God truth. It, it's still taking time to make amends to that. Like it, it eats my soul every day. You know, I was a, I was a horrible husband because I was gone. I didn't pay attention. And you learn from that, all that to say, like, there's freedom in sobriety, but the freedom also comes at a, at a, at a, you have to want to be able to face the arrows because the arrows suck (laughs) and and it's okay, but embrace them, embrace them because there's therapy in the end of it. The journey is so worth it in the end. Perfectly stated. I have absolutely nothing to add to that, except I not only understand I have been in exactly those shoes and it's a bitch. And to look at myself in the mirror, even to this day, it pains me to think how bad I was at being a husband and a a father. It's hard to take, but the reality of it, like you said, you have to take those fucking arrows. You have to forgive yourself. You have to put it out there to get through it. You have to own it just like you described. And it's the hard, it's the hard truth of it. To write my amends letters, oh God, you want to talk about swallowing pride to say, I was a narcissistic drunk and I'm sorry. Like to to openly say those things to people because those are the truest statements to ask for forgiveness is the like most t- tail tucking experience. How liberating though, right? Would, didn't you- and my advice to people is like, not everybody's going to say, I forgive you. <laughs> that, don't expect that <laughs> because you probably fuck some people over. Like, and that's me. Like I have really fucked some people over as a result of my behavior, but I'm okay with knowing that I said, I'm sorry, and I'm not going to force people to forgive me, yeah. but there's a freedom in knowing that I don't have to look over my shoulder or hide my, my, my secret anymore. It is what, that's my secret and that's okay. It's open and it's in the open. I was one of this, I was that guy, but my story doesn't define me as that guy anymore. I think that's really interesting what you say there in terms of it isn't really for them. It's for you. It's like this re sort of, you're you're almost like renegotiating the agreement with yourself when you do Mm -hmm. it. You're getting on the record sort of saying, look, this is not me anymore. And I I'm apologizing, but it's so key. The part that you said that it doesn't matter if they forgive you. Cause I think I struggled with that for a long time too, of going, well, they're not going to forgive me. And ultimately that's not really the important part. Right. 
really isn't. And and I don't know if you guys have, have experienced this either, but you know, one of the other cautionary tales as I tell people is too, is like when you go back to your old stomping grounds, whether it's home or if it's where you used to work, whatever it might be, and they know you from that old life, they're going to try to get you to be that old guy. And they're going to hold those things against you. Like dad, Matt, mm-hmm. remember when you were that guy and you used to do these things and why is, what's one drink? Like they know you as that person. They don't know the work you put in or they don't know the journey you've been on, nor do they care because they want you to be that person that they remember you being. Right. And right. that is that is probably one of the other hardest parts of being, you know, going through the process is saying, look, those people can't be in your life for a while. Like you have to separate yourself from them and that's okay. Like they have to understand that like they're enablers. I'm doing this to, for me and not for you to your points right. and, and, and be okay with not being friends with those people or being acquaintances or being with your family. Like whatever, whatever those, those triggers of those people were, I got rid of those people in my life. They are mm. gone. Yeah. And I have not looked back. I love that. So what, what's life like now in the sunshine? So life for me is I am in the most healthiest relationship I've ever been in my entire life. Like I am, a, I'm seeing this wonderful woman and we, we are just, it's healthy to tell her my, my past and not be judged by it. And to only support me in it tells you that there's freedom in sobriety and it's freedom in, in being honest and open, right? I don't have to hide my, my secret. There is a, I, three weeks ago was told I'm in permission. So like I am in remission for cancer. That's amazing, and I love. Thank you. You can share that. Wow, that's so great. That's badass, man. Thank you. Yeah. So four and a half years of chemo, radiation, and clinical trials, and this, that, or another. Enough holes to uh, look like I'm a ship sinking. Like I mean, like you name it, I probably did it in terms of treatments. And now I'm I'm sober. I'm I'm remission. I'm in the healthiest relationship I've ever been. My work is just on point. I'm, I'm loving life. I'm happy. Why not help? I want to show up. How I show up for people matters to me nowadays. And that didn't matter to me before. How I show up to my kids. I FaceTime with my kids. And how I show up to them is important. How I show up to uh, my girlfriend is really important to me. How I show up to my clients. How do I show up to my family? How do I show up to those people that I hurt? Still mending relationships in that matter. So how I show up to people is like a, a mission-centered approach how I show up how I show up how I show up it's when you're at 175 pounds they're talking about putting a feeding tube in you you have no money to your name you're on state insurance you're broke you're sick you're told that you have three to six months to live people are showing up for you there's a soberness to that experience that I'll never forget people would come over and deliver meals they would take me to my my doctor's appointments because I couldn't drive they would call the check-in on me. They would FaceTime me. They would they would do things that would, would cause a disruption to their lives, but they wanted to show up for me. And that goes to show you that there's humanity in this world that means something. It means a fucking lot. So like, God damn it, Matt, step up to the plate and stop being a bastard that takes and give. And that was the defining moment for me to say, I, I have to be more of a giver. I have taken so much from people as a result of me being sick that I need to be that person that shows up for people nowadays. That was my defining moment. I mean, I was puking. I mean, people had to help me take a shower. 
people had to like help me take a bath like being naked in front of your friends like that's that's a vulnerable experience that's a sobering humbling experience that not a lot of people unfortunately or fortunately don't get to go through i went through it and that's that extreme is what it took for me because i'm such a hard-headed italian that i need to be like like wait the fuck up matt and that's what it that's took impressive man like that you're willing to do that on the show so thank you for that there's nothing to hide man like this is me Asking for that help is the, the hardest thing to do. Like that is, I think I think anyone who's gone through any addiction is asking for help is probably the most, that's the hardest first step, at least it was for me. But the second step to that and the ray of hope is that your story is gonna be the same pretty much with a lot of people that you're gonna meet along this journey. Like a lot of us, you're gonna tell us something and you're not gonna freak us out because we probably done something or done something worse and you're not gonna make us run away. Like there's no judgment amongst alcoholics, former drug addicts. Like guys, there's no judgment here. That's what we're here to do is to help you. We want we want to show up for you. So tell us the honest, like you don't have to hide anything. It's gonna suck to admit, maybe this is the first time you admit something that you've been struggling with, but whatever you tell somebody in AA or any addiction type uh, programs, you're not gonna scare them away. And uh, that's when the real work begins. Thank you for listening to the Dismantled Life Podcast. Subscribe to us anywhere you can find your podcast. If you want to be on the show, please email me at anthony at dismantled.life. Talk to you next week. Stay in the sunshine.